When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm host Anthony. This week, Oxford researcher Kate Ollie joins me to talk about Sansa. This chapter is just packed with metaphor and symbolism, and it's a tight little hopeful unit. I love the way the hound is portrayed in this chapter. I love the foreshadowing. In fact, Kate and I do a little bit of theory crafting on maybe how the hound will eventually die. Then my friend Arthur jumps on for a short excerpt to talk about unsavory rumors of great women, because as we all know, Arthur is an insufferable gossip. All right. So without further ado, here is medieval historian Catherine Ollie. I feel like talking with you about Sansa, it's always nice to have someone who really likes the character. Yeah, I think it it does make a difference with how you connect with different characters I mean I was chatting with a friend about kind of the series and I I think it was about the series and they were sort of saying you know it's hard to root for anyone because you know they're all so terrible (laughs) Um, and I feel Sansa just really bucks that trend Uh I think it's one of the reasons why she is she is one of my favorites because I mean even Arya gets a little bit sociopathic at times you know oh yeah she's um, death religion and you you know and um and I, I really like Sansa that amidst all of Martin's other kind of characters who are, you know, often scheming uh-huh. and have their own agendas, like there's a certain, I don't know, yeah, integrity about Sansa that I do enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I thought this was a lovely chapter. It's it's a it's such a it's such a hopeful chapter and I, you get to see Sandor Clingane in a kind of a an odd light and you get to sort of see Sansa's hopes get pinned on someone that looks a little bit like the storybooks that she used to read. And uh, I think as a contained unit, it's a very hopeful and, and, and really kind of beautiful little chapter. Yeah, I would agree. I, I really like this chapter um, with Sansa, and I, I really like Sansa's kind of perspective generally. Um, although it did strike me as I was reading it that... Uh, a suitable subtitle for this chapter would be Sansa encounters drunk men, basically. Because <laughs> um, it's just her yeah. wandering around the Red Keep and bumping into people uh, in various uh-huh. states of inebriation. That's right. Um, but yeah, no, I love how she, um, even at this point, she's really kept a kind of core of innocence and goodness about her um, that we get to see in this chapter. I agree. And, you know, if you just kind of like can put it out of your mind that you know this, this kind of goes wrong for her eventually but um i i i kind of love the the difference it seeming seemingly difference between 
Like, Dantos doesn't quite look like the true knight that she was hoping for, but then she can kind of squint and think, well, maybe he he does. And then, you know, the hound absolutely does not look like the true knight she was hoping for, but maybe there are a few <laughs> hints that he is. So, uh, yes, but but you're right. They they are all drunk. It's it's after hours in King's Landing. <laughs> What el- what else is there to do? And- <laughs> yeah. So let me go ahead and read my synopsis here. Sansa has been given a secret note. It reads, come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. After a disturbance outside the castle gates, she makes her way out of Magor's holdfast and into the night. Serdantos, who seemingly wrote the note, is waiting for her. He swears an oath to help her get her back to Winterfell, and Sansa reluctantly accepts. On the way back to her room, a drunken Sandor Clegane interrogates her, belittles her, but then brings her back to her room unscathed. So, Kate, Ollie, what shall we talk about? Oh, well, there's so much to talk about here. I think, um, yeah, as I said, I really like Sansa, and and I really I like the the way in which Martin uses her to play with these stereotypes about kind of chivalry and mm. what it means to be a knight and what it means to be, you know, medieval lady. Um, and and this is a great chapter for that because we see, yeah, these very different kind of models of, um, I don't know, knightly behavior, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, she interacts with Sedontos, who used to be a knight and now isn't, but talks a lot in the chapter about how, you know, she has, um, you know, she's she's kind of made his vows real to him again. And when he was a knight, he wasn't really honorable. But now that he's a fool, he thinks he can be a, a true knight. Um, yeah. And and so I think there's some really great, great kind of stuff to explore, explore there, um, particularly since. And I think I didn't really pick up on this when I read it the first time. Um, you kind of, you know, said on to us, you you pity him and you think he is quite a helpful character for Sansa. But looking back, um, a lot of what he says is just complete lies because um, mm. he's in the pay of Littlefinger all along. And yeah, um, and I don't think I fully grasped how ironic, I suppose, a lot of this chapter actually turns out to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't, if you can kind of just keep it as an isolated uh, unit... It it really does raise your hopes, you know, and, and, you know, she's in an impossible situation. She's being abused. Mm. You know, she reflects on this bruise that used to be purple and it's turned yellow um, uh, because she, you know, she spoke out of turn at one point or something and the, Joffrey didn't like it. Yes. Yes. And so she's, yeah, you just, you just want her, you desperately want her to just get the hell out any way possible. And here's this little lifeline that comes along. And she reflects on it. She thinks, ah, you know, this is crazy. I can't believe this. How can I put my life in the hands of this drunken fool? And yet she also thinks, yeah, but the stories that I've read do talk about men of unlikely origin unlikely stature unlikely you know beginnings mm. who can find courage and and end up acting in knightly ways and she she's able to use that to kind of see beyond the surface of course with martin 
there's never ever two layers. You know, there's always like <laughs> yeah. fourteen layers. Of, you yeah. know, maybe Don, maybe Dantos does believe what he's saying. Maybe he does think mm. that he's acting in her best interest, and he's playing his part as he says. Uh, but of course, you know, th- there's also Littlefinger is ultimately behind him, and Littlefinger is is a mm. uh, untrustworthy character, I suppose. Yeah. When you read this chapter, do you feel like you're reading? you know, believably reading a teenage girl, uh, or do you just, let's talk a little bit about Sansa in general, shall we? Yeah, I mean, I always, I always do find her quite believable. I mean, insofar as, you know, obviously it's, it's all fiction. Um, But I I like the way I think Sansa is believably vulnerable um, and, and naive. I mean, even, Mm. even here where, you know, she's lost some of her um, illusions about Joffrey and you know her safety um, the bit where she sort of she's kind of musing on the situation in the capital and and she thinks a bit about kind of Stannis and Renly you know coming to besiege the city um, mm-hmm. and she doesn't seem to have grasped that they're very separate armies and and that there's yeah. a whole load of political stuff going on there she sort of thinks of them as you know they're not Lannisters and and as if this is a kind of you know us versus them conflict and in her head it just seems quite I don't know black and white that she sort Mm -hmm. of boils everything down to you know the Lannisters and people who are not the Lannisters and doesn't understand that you know just because they have a common enemy it doesn't mean everyone's going to unite against the Lannisters and it's actually not going to help her all that much um, I think similarly when the city's kind of under siege and obviously she's, you know, she's really hoping that Stannis will win. And then Cersei, I think, points out to her that, you know, that's not necessarily going to be a the safest thing. option for yeah, her. Yeah, right. there's there's still going to be a lot of, of downsides and, you know, she's going to be in considerable danger if the city falls. Um, and again, she hasn't, I think, fully sort of thought that through. And she has such faith in Rob, which is quite, tragic when you think about it because he he's always making these political decisions and about how essentially his sisters aren't really worth trading Jamie Lannister for and you know he mm-hmm. it's always Catelyn pushing Rob to remember his sisters and and trying to get them back and and Rob's making the more grown-up decision that you know you can't trade for two you know yeah. teenage girls it's it's not his bannerman won't let him but again Sansa doesn't seem to to realize that she really she really pins all of her hopes for rescue on on Rob. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the sort of her calculation with this is that immediately she receives this note. It's under her, you know, it's on parchment. It's in a hand that she doesn't recognize. Uh, it's under her pillow. It's a simple one-line note. And her immediate inclination is i should give this to cersei Mm, yes you know she's sort of working this through in her mind she's thinking maybe i should give this to the queen to prove that i can be trusted or to prove that i can be a good girl or something Mm. like that i mean it immediately kind of homes in on this captor mentality or almost you know she's been abused she she almost has the mentality of of a victim and someone who's a, a bit institutionalized at this point, mm. like whatever I can do to avoid the next beating 
is what I need to do. It's like everything is survival mode. And you almost get a little bit of a, you know, this is kind of the, the, the role that Theon ends up playing uh, mm-hmm. with Ramsay later on. It's almost like he's, he he wants to cast off any desire to have his own agency so that he can he can simply survive. Yes. And so she, it, it's a fleeting thought, but it's there, you know, it's, it's all, you know, should I give this to Cersei? Maybe, maybe this will prove that I'm, I'm good in her eyes. Yeah. Almost thinking like this could happen, you know, <laughs> that Cersei could be persuaded as such. And, and, uh, of course we know that, you know, this is not, you know, she, anyway, I, I just don't think Cersei's going to be fooled by any of that, but. No, but I, I, I think it's really interesting to, to look at yeah, the kind of assumptions that she makes, you know, firstly, that this might be a trap, but also mm-hmm. I think she seems to immediately assume that it's from a man, that it's going to be, um, a tr- yeah, could this be her answer at last, a true knight sent mm-hmm. to save her? And she kind of runs mm-hmm. through possible people in her head and, yeah. and they're all male, which I also find really interesting. Yeah, but... she thinks maybe I'll show up to the God's word. Ill and pain will, will be yes. there with with the sword and he'll be smirking and or or maybe this you know this is all meant to be Joffrey's trick every possibility she can think of but she takes the risk eventually mm, she, decides, she does i'm going to do this because if i don't do this uh i'm going to be here forever this is maybe my only mm. chance um i do i noted that cersei is swapping out uh servants yes I wanted to ask you about this. So every 14 days, Cersei decides that she's going to introduce a new set of servants to Sansa's care so that she will not make any strong relationships with the serving class at King's Landing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about sort of the realities of sort of highborn ladies becoming fast friends with their, you know, their maid servants or something like that. It, would this be a sort of a typical upstairs, downstairs sort of thing where you have some sort of work relationship, but sort of it develops into a relationship that really is more of like a friendship, despite the class difference? So I don't know historically, but I think certainly it becomes a bit of a literary motif sometimes mm. so I'm thinking of Isolde or Iso, like she has her nurse or her kind of maid yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and she's very involved obviously in how Tristan and Isolde originally kind of fall in love with the um the, mm. the love potion and everything um and so I think in the literature yes this kind of figure of the lady's companion or the lady's maid um, is, you know, is is quite a, an established figure as someone that she can take into her confidence. Um, and I think there would have been certainly sometimes quite strong bonds. There's a great Icelandic saga where um, the female character is is pregnant and she's traveling to see her brother who she's not kind of seen in a while and she's not very happy in her marriage. and And she stays with her brother for quite a long time, longer than she intends because he wants her to stay. And while she's there, her nurse, um, a woman called Thordis, dies and she's really 
distressed by this. You know, the the saga sort of says, you know, this really affected her deeply. Mm. Um, and so it it seems, and indeed it's kind of a bit of a bad omen because then she goes on to die in childbirth. Um, and it it does seem like, um, you know, losing her nurse is, is a huge emotional blow for her um, because this is a woman who, you know, took care of her and maybe presumably would have helped to take care of her while she was giving birth as well. Um, but those are all literary examples. And I was also thinking of like, again, a literary example, but you have the Frodo and Sam relationship, right? And they become sort yeah. of, uh, you know, traveling companions and then eventually, you know, war companions. And, uh, you know, I, I think that historically that is actually sort of a, a reflects on that, I don't know, battle-tested example. In mm. war, they become fast yeah. friends, uh, even even if back home they, they have a class distinction or something along those lines. Cersei's really taking care to make sure that Sansa is absolutely isolated. It's not just that she sends Jane Poole away. It's not just that Septimore Dame's been beheaded. Sansa can't even have someone who brushes her hair yes. that sticks around. She absolutely has no one. No. And you, get, you really do get the sense that she's utterly alone. Yes, and I think it's really interesting to see how she does briefly remember Jane in this chapter um, and kind of, A, regret that she's not with her, but then B, not not give too much thought to where Jane actually is. Um, uh-huh. I mean, she she sort of puts her in the same category as Septim Mordain, so maybe she thinks that Jane is is dead. Um, but I find that really interesting that she sort of she she thinks of Jane as as Jane pertains to herself. You know, what a yeah, comfort it would yeah. be if Jane were here. Um, and of course, later, you know, what has happened to Jane is even worse than than what has happened to Sansa because she doesn't have the kind of protection that Sansa's name and her birth afford. Well, absolutely. And there's a, there's a monster in the kingdom even worse than Joffrey, yeah. right? And his name's Ramsay, so. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. She misses Jane most. She wishes she had someone who could tell her what to do. And that would be Septa. Mm. And then she kind of runs through the Rolodex and she's thinking, well, I actually even, it would be nice to even yeah. see Arya, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then I was thinking about her in relationship to Bran because in the last Bran chapter, he really is sort of pining for the knighthood that could have been. You know, he's seen all these mm. knights at court. And one thing that Ian McInnes mentioned to me was that you know, we often think of Sansa in terms of sort of being this naive person who's been affected by these chivalric stories that she's reading. Bran is very much the same way. Mm. You know, he he really would like to, you know, he thinks back to these mythic knights and wants to be like one of them. And, 
You know, his his dreams of being a knight have been shattered, but he still kind of allows his mind to wander from time to time and wonders what might mm. have been. Very much a parallel. And and also I think Robin as well. Um, he is very obsessed with the the winged knight, isn't he? And some of the early legends of um uh-huh. the veil. Um and right. and so I think yeah. again that's a kind of I know maybe a way that she something she and Robin sort of have in common and um right. a way they can be compared as well. She takes the knife. I thought that was mm. a brave move, you know? That's sort of like uh, you know, even though maybe she she's not as familiar with weaponry as, as Arya is, you know, she's been using this knife to, you know, cut apples and whatnot, but she decides she's gonna leave the room, she's gonna take the knife and she ends up drawing the knife. Mm. On Sir Dantos, and I thought I don't know if that bespeaks courage, but it does. It does feel like she and Arya are not that. Dis- you know, they they are, they do have some similarities. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what I would. I mean, would that be considered beyond the gender norms? Beyond the gender expectations. I feel like knives, because they're such practical utensils. Uh-huh. would have been yeah quite you know common just because that's kind of eating utensil as well and um so i feel like it it wouldn't necessarily have been that unusual maybe in medieval times because a knife would just be something probably that both genders are quite familiar with i think as compared to kind of weaponry specifically whereas i think a knife sometimes like in this context is is a bit more of a tool than a specific weapon. Sure. But I also like how she sort of thinks, you know, she's thinking of her wolf as well as she's kind of drawing the knife. And, yeah. you know, she's she's very much, I don't know, acting out the kind of stark stereotype, you know. Right. Wolves and, and weapons. And I think it's really interesting when Lady kind of comes to her mind. Um, it always tells yes. you something about where Sansa is emotionally. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So... All right, so this is interesting to me. She walks into the God's Wood, and immediately she thinks, you know, she can smell the earth of it. Mm. And she thinks, Lady lady would like yeah. it here. And then she thinks about her wolf. And one of the things that she considers, it's, an, it's a really interesting thing she says. She says, Lady could always smell out the truth. Mm. It was kind of curious to me. I thought, mm, I'm not. <laughs> You're not convinced. I, I, all right. So it's got to be. I think it's got to be sort, sort of a literary device here. Immediately, th- what I thought initially was, lady is sort of connected with the religions of the north, which I think is sort of built a little bit on druidism and tru- mm. truth, truth and oaks and truth telling and men of the truth and men of the oak. These are all kind of overlapping categories and you know so you've got you know ned who tells the truth and he's a man of honor and and then i thought oh no this is this is a nice little set of three in this chapter because she says lady can smell the truth she's looking for a true knight Mm -hmm. and then sandor comes along at the end of the chapter and he says i always trusted dogs more than knights a dog will never lie to you Yes, yeah, and he he even says a dog can smell a lie, so he kind of... And then that's the third time that that's... So you have this connection between 
I don't know, canines and truth. And I think that if you just look at this chapter as a unit, I think that that set of three is supposed to tell us something about Sandor Clegane. Mm. So, I, I mean, I, I don't want to short change Dantos here. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 did you notice that? I, I was wondering yeah, how you no, took I did, that. Yeah, no, I did notice that. And yeah, similarly, I agree. I think it, it tells you a lot about Sandor, that, you know, the kind of the parallel between dogs and wolves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit earlier on, isn't there, when Lady is killed and Robert says, you know, get her a dog instead, because that's kind of more appropriate to have you know she can have a a dog and again in feast for crows she gets comfort from that old wolfhound Mm -hmm. that she kind of she kind of um yeah um has for a while in one of the chapters just kind of accompanying her and um so kind of that is definitely a motif I think that that runs through um and again kind of mixing it all together as well is this idea of singing that gets mm-hmm. used a lot by Sandor and a lot by Littlefinger. And it seems to always have a deeper meaning than just singing, yeah, right? It's right. sometimes it has kind of sexual overtones. Sometimes it's about lying. I mean, so I think in an earlier chapter, Littlefinger says to Tyrion something like, I could sing this song to Lysa, yeah, you know, if you want right. me to. And so he seems to use singing. And again, obviously, Marillion comes up later in Feast for Crows and again, kind of singing and lying and uh, obscuring the truth. And and so there's a, there's a whole kind of complicated nexus, I feel, between kind of right. truth and lies, Sansa, Sandor, wolves and dogs. And, and also, I think at some point, Someone says all crows are liars or something. That again, the connection between Ooh, birds, yes. birds and lies, right? And and that feeds in as well because again, on kind of one hand, you have all the imagery that's dogs and wolves and kind of canine, as you said, uh-huh. and then Sansa has a whole extra load of imagery that is all birds. So she's little yeah, yeah. bird. That's right. Her as Alain, her house sigil is a bird, um, and obviously with Robin again, he's obsessed with you know, the young falcon and, and all of that falcon yes, imagery that yes. comes with the eerie. So she's always, she always seems to be living in kind of double, a double life, Sansa. She always has kind of, I don't know, two different meanings to almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think that's a, it's a key thing he's setting up in this chapter. Although I did also wonder, because there's a really obvious kind of comparison here between Dontos and Sandor, you know, yes. two different kinds of knights, one the kind of knightly fool, um, and one that's the sort of the anti-knight, the you know, knights are killers and it's all right. the songs are all fake. Um, and then this kind of spectre of the true knight and wondering what the true knight is. Um, and I really wonder how Brienne might play into that as well, um, as the kind of you know she's not a knight but yeah she ends up looking for Sansa and um sometimes a lot of what Sansa prays does tend to come true in the books so she prays well she prays that obviously Sandor's heart will be gentled you know when he turns up in her room and that you know this rage would go out of him which does seem to come true if if you believe that he is the grave digger in Feast for Crows, right, where he's kind of laid down that burden of anger and he's become someone else and the hound is dead. And um, and obviously a lot of what she wishes about 
Janos Slint, I mean, she wishes in this chapter that the others will get him, which isn't exactly what happens, but obviously he does come to a sticky no, end. No, but she also prays in this chapter that, that the gods will send her a true knight. And it, it's possible that this, it's like she thinks it's Dantos, but maybe the true knight is Sandor. Yeah, or even Brienne later on. Like, it, uh-huh. it's kind of, I think there there's definite overtones that Sansa's prayers do have consequences, I think, sometimes. And, and that, yeah. That's really be... interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I'll read this little part here. It's She says, why do you let people call you a dog? You won't let anyone call you a knight. He says, I like dogs better than knights. My father's father was a kennel master at the Rock. One autumn year, Lord Titos came between a lioness and her prey. The lioness didn't give a shit that she was the Lannister's own sigil. Bitch tore my lord's horse and would have done for my lord too. But my grandfather came up with the hounds. Three of her dogs died running her off. My grandfather lost a leg, so Lannister paid him for it with lands and a tower house and took his son to Squire. The three dogs on our banner are the three that died in the yellow autumn of grass. A hound will die for you, but will never lie to you. He'll look you right in the face. He cupped her under the jaw, raising her chin, his fingers pinching her painfully. And that is more than little birds can do, isn't it? So there's there's a bit there. Of course, we have the sort of the backstory of how the Cleganes and the Lannisters came into relationship, right? But mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. A hound will die for you, but never lie to you. And I think if we're reading this chapter correctly, Sandor, while he doesn't look a true knight, mm-hmm. and while he doesn't claim to be a true knight, he I think he is the true knight because he is the hound that won't lie to you. And then... He says, but he will die for you. And I'm wondering, Kate, is this foreshadowing? Will we eventually lose the hound in service to Sansa's cause? I mean, I think that would certainly be a very fitting, you know, climax to his narrative arc. I could definitely see see that happening Um, because I do... I think it would be very hard to write a non-tragic ending for Sandor Clique. <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, I think there's something here. I, I think that, the, I don't know what to make of it, mm. but uh, clearly she's the bird. Clearly he's the hound. I mean, there's no disputing that. There's another little hint here that I wanted to point out. This is the second time he saves her from falling. Yes. So back back in A Game of Thrones, when she first sees Illin Payne, she's she's frightened by him, and she kind of like takes a few steps back to like get away from him because he's so scary, and she trips, and someone from behind catches her so she doesn't fall, and she thinks immediately she thinks. If you know, I think my dad just caught me. Like uh-huh. she, she confuses Sunder with her father, and of course, I think sometimes when you have a mistaken identity in these stories, it, it means yeah. something. And she turns, and then of course, it's the Hound, who's even scarier than Ellen <laughs> Payne or whatever. <laughs> but she notes that the that he kind of catches her gently, like her father would have. Hmm. And then in this chapter. They bump into each other on the, the this winding stairway, 
and he catches her from falling and kind of makes a joke out of it. Like, are you trying to kill us both? Yeah. And so this is the second time that he has sort of played the role of a protector, even though he he's a little bit rough and he belittles mm-hmm. her and he makes fun of her and you know he he's he's very much a, a kind of almost scoundrelly kind of guy, right? Yep. But I feel like the story's telling us that he is playing the protector of her in some way. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. Um, I mean, it's it's really interesting in the text. You know, she literally she says. My Florian to Dantos, the gods heard my prayer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she literally kind of bumps into the hound, you know, lines later. Yeah. Um, right. Which, as you say, it kind of suggests maybe maybe the prayer has been answered in a different way, um, not as she understands it. Um, I mean, also, I think they have another encounter on top of a tower, don't they, later on in this book, um, where he again sort of, suggests half jokingly that she might be about to throw herself off right I was proud um, about that that's right yeah so so I agree that that's a really interesting yeah connection he's always kind of there to pick her up when <laughs> when she's in a you know falling in a panic in addition to that he kind of runs a little bit of in- interference with her lie yeah like immediately he you know he interrogates her and he says what are you doing out and she says, I was in the Godswood praying for my father. And then as they're talking, Boros Blount comes up and says, what are you doing out, my lady? And she says, I was in the Godswood pl- praying for the king. So I think immediately the hound knows she's lying. Right? Yeah. She can't keep her story straight. Now, she thinks that she, you know, she did better the second time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Immediately, the, the hound steps in and says, well, who could sleep? How, how did you expect her to sleep with all the racket that's going on around here? Almost sort of like deflecting mm. what what he thinks is a pretty obvious lie and sort of helping her back to her room unscathed. I, I think that he he does. That's the second time he does that, too, because during the, the name day feast. Yes. She yes. saves Dantos and then he backs her up and says, everyone knows that if you, you know, whatever you. So on your name day, you reap the entire year, which is sort of a lie she just made up. Um, and then, of course, this, you know, the, what, how does the chapter end? It says, um, they're all liars here and everyone mm. better than you. Yeah. So he knows. He knows she's she's bad at this and he wants to step in and help her. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting over the course of the books to see her very slowly get slightly better at lying. Um, there's a bit slightly later in this book where after she's been beaten and it's Tyrion that comes mm-hmm. and kind of rescues her and he suggests letting her stay the night in the Tower of the Hand, but she doesn't want to do that because she's worried she won't be able to get to the Godswood to meet Sedontos right. and she won't be able to get home. And she she says something like, if I sleep here, I'll be haunted by all the ghosts of my father's men. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And And she sort of says it and she doesn't, he says something like, you know, she, he, she doesn't really know if she's lying or not. She's kind of, she's trying to lie because she doesn't want to be there. But actually, as she says it, she sort of thinks that that's possibly true. Um, <laughs> and and Littlefinger's always trying to kind of coach her into being, you know, better at her deceit. Um, and I think, I, I mean, one of the things, yeah, as I said, I really like about Sansa is that she's one of the few characters in Game of Thrones who does have that kind of core of, 
don't know kind of honorableness and she's very kind at heart yeah um and and I think that's kind of a little bit under siege in the books you know and it'll be really important I think to see whether she can hold on to that or not really because there's nothing really bad about her being a bad liar I mean I think that's part of why Clegane likes her even actually he doesn't like lying and and Sansa is such a bad liar that she doesn't lie to him which I think he would yeah he would dislike being lied to (laughs) um and yet it's kind of Littlefinger really does I don't know assault that that core integrity of hers Right. Yeah, um, Littlefinger is almost the anti-Clegane. Yes. You know? Yeah, I think he kind of that she sets them up on a, you know, they are kind of opposite ends of a spectrum. One of them never, um, never kind of signaling his help for her, you know, never offering it particularly clearly and yet doing a lot to actually help her, you know, picking her up and deflecting attention. And, and the other one constantly signaling that he says he wants to help her but actually doing a lot more and, yes. and using her in, That's right. in much more complex ways. Um, yeah. So I, I think they are different. And, and I think she's, she's still only just beginning to kind of grasp that still, I think. Mm-hmm. I, the other thing, you know, they encounter Boros here. The, the thing that Boros says is that, uh, you know, there are some fools at the gate they heard Joffrey was feasting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of his retainers, and they thought they should be feasted too. Now that's his story, right? But we know that that the food supply has been cut off, mm. and so I think what we're meant to see, sort of between the lines here, is that there are hungry people rioting out there, and this is yeah. exactly why Joffrey decides he's going to don his armor for the first time. He wants to go, <laughs> wants to go out and yeah. put down, you know, this. You know the, the the siege of evil men. In reality, they're just they're just hungry. The hound kind of sarcastically says, "You know what? You know what a brave, yes. what a brave yeah. boy, or whatever." Um, but it does sort of set up the writing that will eventually happen in King's Landing. Yeah, I think it's a definite stoking of the tensions that you know she's she's pretty oblivious to, but for the reader, it's kind of yes. gradually. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and it'll become a major plot point because eventually, you know, the the chaos that there's going to be chaos in the city, and the common folk are not going to be on the side of the Lannisters, and mm-hmm. they're actually not going to really care who's highborn and who's not. You know, at the, at the very most basic level, they're not having one of their primary needs met, and so all of these niceties kind of get thrown out the window. And Sander will will give get a chance to sort of show himself heroic because of it yes yeah it's a really i mean i think that's a really great part of a clash of kings is is the i don't know the febrile atmosphere i suppose of king's landing throughout the whole book because we spend quite a lot of time there in clash of kings because we're with Tyrion, who's in king's landing and we're with sansa who's in king's landing and um and i think you know martin does that really well the um the smaller consequences i suppose of you know of larger wars that it, it gradually builds up and builds up until yeah we get the 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 very um dramatic riot scene um and um i think i think it's a really 
interesting thing again in uh, Feast for Crows, that kind of similar tension that you get building in King's Landing. Yeah. Um, but with a different kind of focal point this time, more around the the religious aspect. Yeah, King's Landing is like a, a powder keg ready to blow. Yeah, yeah. Right? There, there's so many factors going into this. So notable introductions, we hear the Clegane's origin story for the first time. Like, we we, we find out why... Why they have a, a dog on their sigil and why they act like the Lannisters, I, I guess, pets or or attack mm. dogs or something like yeah. that. We also are introduced to the note for the first time. Um, no notable departures in this chapter, but I did note that in the show, it's a little bit different in that Sansa's going to the Godswood to pray just because... And then Boros kind of like is hiding there and kind of scares her. Or not Boros, but um Dantos. Dantos, yeah. Yeah, Dantos is, is there and he, he kind of like sneaks up with her, sneaks up on her in the godswood, and that's how they encounter. So there's no need for a note. And it happens not at night, but at, during the day. So I thought that was really interesting. A really interesting little change there because you don't have kind of the the parallel notes between Catelyn in the first book and Sansa in the second book. Mm. You know, you've got that note from yeah. Lysa in the first book to Cat. Yeah. And then, of course, I think that this is meant to sort of parallel that a little bit, but you don't get that in the show. And it also removes a little bit of Sansa's agency, doesn't it? Because she does, you know. Right. She thinks in her head it might be a, it might be a plot, it might be a scheme, but she goes anyway in the book and kind of, you know, she... I know, takes her courage in hand and is like, yeah, yeah, let's she, go. Yeah, in um, yeah, in the book, she's she has to make a decision: am I going to stay or am I going to go? And she, you mm. know, she's got to, you know, take the risk and grab the knife and go and you know, hold the knife to son to to mm. Dantos and you know interrogate him a little bit and make a decision of what I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I think I appreciate the book a little bit better on these points. Yeah. I also wanted to point out that in the show, I think that Littlefinger is given one of the Hound's lines. The end of this chapter, the Hound says, everyone is a better liar than you. And then, of course, in the show, it's Littlefinger. But if he's not marrying me... He'll let you go home. Joffrey's not the sort of boy who gives away his toys. You have a tender heart. Just like your mother did at your age. I can see so much of her. And you, she was like a sister to me. For her sake, I'll help get you home. King's Landing is my home now. Look around you. We're all liars here. And every one of us is better than you. There were just a couple of tiny other things. Um, I like the little, um, the appearance of the black cat that I think also has come up in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, just because, again, I think the cat is is Balerion the Dreadrite that used to belong to Princess Rhaenys. Um, oh, I and didn't make the connection. I, I assume so. I've, I can't remember. I'm sure at some point someone says that she had this black kitten and uh-huh. the inference is that it, it kind of, the, the black cat that is really unfriendly that wanders around the castle is this cat that used oh, to be hers. Right, right. And so assuming that that is the case, um, I think that's a really interesting 
just a little detail because again the specter of the princess that had no protector you know that dies being dragged out from under her father's bed and mm. it's just another little I know kind of intertextual comment on Sansa's situation I suppose that there's always the specter of these women that have gone before her that have suffered exactly that kind of mm. fate mm. um so I, I I appreciated that little little detail I'm so glad you pointed that um, out yeah and um and yeah, and I was, I'm, I'm always slightly curious about the actual story of Florian and John Keel because lots of songs that get mentioned, we actually find out kind of the, the general gist of what happens. I mean, we get quite a lot of the bear and the maiden fair right. in one of the chapters of Storm of Swords, I think, where it gets sung by um, Olena Tyrell's fool to right. cover one of their conversations. And obviously we know what happens in the reigns of Castamere, and but we never actually know the plot of Florian and John Keel. No, um, I, I did a little bit of research for this because I thought, I wonder if this is actually ever written down, but all we ever yeah. get are, are sort of like just the the general the, plot yeah, points. Relationship yeah, relationship kind of idea, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I wonder if, you know, it'll ever... It'll ever come up as a as a kind of plot point again, and and we might learn learn more because um, I think that's a it's a really interesting um, it is idea. The, right, all the little stories yeah. within stories I find quite interesting. It yes, that's right, and it is one of these things that unifies Martin's characters and gives it gives you a, a sense that these characters are all kind of working with the same limited range of mythologies. Yes. You know, because I think uh, Brienne at one point, you know, sort of indicates that she was told these stories. And I think uh, Rob and, and John used to pretend to be the Dragon Knight and yeah. and Florian. And, of course, we have this with, with Sansa. And, of course, Dantos knows about this. I think, it's just my headcanon here, <laughs> but I think... That a lot of what Dante says in this chapter has been rehearsed with Littlefinger. Mm, I I, w- I was wondering that when I was rereading it, and I was thinking about it's a little bit too know, eloquent. It's how perfect, yes. And it's like I, when I was a knight, I was a fool, but now that I'm a fool, I feel like I can be a true knight. I think this is like Littlefinger coaching him to say just the right thing, and to fe- and to to mention that he could be her. Florian, Littlefinger knows that she's been raised on these stories. And, you know, at one point he, you know, he tells her, like, life is not a song or whatever. But mm-hmm. Littlefinger knows this about Sansa. He knows that, like, where her weakness is. And I think that he coaches Dantos. It's, it's almost just too perfect. Yeah, I agree that he knows exactly how to kind of appeal to her. Yeah, her sense of of what is believable and what is proper uh-huh. and appropriate to the situation. Because yeah, yeah. um, it strikes me the bit where she kind of kisses him on the cheek at the end is so performative. Like yeah. she feels like this this is this is what the lady would do now in the song. You know, she would she would give him a kiss, and she she sort of she feels so like she's acting in a role at that moment That's that right. that there's nothing kind of emotional about it. It's it it is a kind of a, a social ritualized display yeah, yeah. um and um and yeah so I, I agree i think that's a very believable headcanon to me <laughs> right 
And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. And Sansa almost gets killed. Right. But the hound saves Sansa. He disembowels that guy. This guy has... He enters that room and he like lifts the guy up off the ground with one hand. Yeah. I always think... That always takes me out of the scene. I always think... That's Darth Vader. You're yeah, just... there, is, there is an element of like, I mean. We, I don't we... care how strong you are and how weak the other little person is. To hold someone up with one arm like that. Interesting. You only that ever see part. that in the movies. Interesting. As opposed to smoke babies. Smoke babies at, at the right hour of the night. <laughs> Depending Seems on whether I've watched a scary movie, Seems plausible. I I have a different relationship to the idea of smoke babies. You feel like you've probably encountered more potential smoke babies than someone who can lift another person up with one arm. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like I'm watching an, an A-Team episode when I see that kind of thing. <laughs> and I noticed something really funny in this book that they talk about lady of bear island lady momo yes and then he says that she sleeps with bears yeah, right um which I, I don't know if martin probably knows this but this is incredibly historically accurate because almost every single powerful woman in history has had it on like the craziest amount of sexual slander that you <laughs> literally can't imagine that people would believe this so yeah. i've um, um, I've put together a short list of a few uh, very famous um, uh, female rulers okay. and leaders uh, in history, and then we're going to go through. I love what it. Is I the love completely it. Completely ridiculous slander about all, of course, of sexual nature. So we, I'm going to start with Hatshepsut, which is probably the one of the ones that you're not, not going to know. Um, and because Hatshepsut had a lowborn advisor that rose to power. When she was in control, uh, which of course was true for a lot of leaders throughout history, what they say? What do you think they said? I mean, the, the most typical one is she sleeps with a horse. Um, but, <laughs> but I, so I'm just going to throw that out because that's the one I've heard in the past. But I, I don't know. Why don't you inform me? So, Hatshepsut, they said that she slept with that lowborn advisor. But I think you're thinking of Catherine the Great. That um, was, as historians say, a serial monogamist. So she slept with a lot of men, not at the same time, but she had uh -huh. a, a, quite a few relationships, about 22, we think. Um, and yes, she died of a stroke, but they claim she died having sex with a horse. It killed her. <laughs> it's, it's one of the oldest tropes. Yes. It's... <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's hear the next one. This is a... Uh, Wu Zhao, or Wu Zuqian, as she's known by many people. Um, and so they say that she would seduce lonely peasants to have sex with them, um, that she was more lustful than prostitutes, and that what she would do is goad lovers to the extreme until they became withered husks, draining themselves for her. And they <laughs> were left without any maleness anymore oh. they also claim they also claim that diplomats had to perform cunnilingus in order to be able to talk to her i mean it's, yeah i mean and every every single one of these things 
why are these uh, women sexualized? Yep. And every single historian will tell you, well, actually what happens is in the following years after they've had all this power, people really want to bring them down. Mm. And so they'll create stories about how they fucked a horse. Yeah. They'll create a story about <laughs> the fact that they wore, wore, wore some pads made to have sex with women or whether they fucked their advisor or that. They yeah. Kind of because it, it kind of brought down the idea that women could have power. It's a really low imagination. I mean, it's, it's one of these things. It's, it's funny. It's like, how do these slanders end up keep working over and over again when it's just, it's like, it's such a predictable playbook, right? Now, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Lord Mormont. In this case, you know, the, the confusion here is maybe it's, you know, Lady Mormont. Uh, which is not the the young girl we meet in the show, but an older woman. And uh, the rumor is she has sex with the bear. I had a, a guest on recently that says actually that is a uh, a true statement, and that that woman is actually having an affair with J.R. Mormont, who is called the old bear. And so she is sleeping with um, a relative. And uh, that's where you get the accusation of bear love. See, do you think that's what Jane Slint is? I, I don't know. I think I think it's just become a rumor, right? It's just become a rumor. But yeah, yeah. but uh, Chinese whisper. But but there is sort of a hint there that maybe uh, J.R. Mormont has not kept his 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 vows as Lord Commander. Uh, I don't know. I, it seems spurious to me. But um, but I I thought that that was an interesting little detail. 